0: Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to The Love Code. Thanks for joining me today. It's always great having you here with me when I have these amazing conversations that are really designed to uplift, to um, open our hearts, to transform our lives, fill us with more joy, healing. Vitality, that's what the love code is all about. It's really a spiritual orientation so we can fill our hearts and souls with a a light and a joy and an energy of peace and harmony. And, um, you know, as always, these conversations really uplift me as well as everyone listening. If you are here for the first time, I always like to welcome my new listeners. So hello, welcome. Feel free to get in touch with me. In fact, if anyone ever has any questions, comments, suggestions, please contact me, and uh, I will certainly look forward to hearing from you and respond to you. And if you are listening for the first time, I invite you to go to my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know, which is the name of my other program on Progressive Radio Network, and also my website, which is Dr. Dr. com. And if you um, go to either of those places, either like me at Facebook or opt in to my uh, website, I send these archive shows out every week, so they just go right to you. You won't miss a show, and you'll get both of the programs that I produce every week, the Love Code and also What Women Must Know. And if you're really wanting to be uplifted throughout the week, that's the thing to do. So um, it's Dr. Cheryl Selman, and Facebook is What Women Must Know. Well, Love Code is all about understanding how to open our hearts, how to live life in a much more loving way. And today we're going to talk about the healing love of dogs with my guest, Clive Wynn. And just a little bit about Clive. It's Dr. Clive Wynn. He's a PhD and is the founding director of the Canine Science Collabor- Collaboratory at. Arizona State University. He has published pieces in Psychology Today, New Scientist, and the New York Times, and has appeared on National Geographic Explorer, PBS, and the BBC. He is the author of this wonderful new book called Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. And it's my pleasure to welcome Clive to the show today. So hello and welcome Clive.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon.
0: Well, it's great having you, you know. Um I just I got I got your book and I just thought, this is such a great topic. I'm so curious to know more about dogs and our relationship to dogs. Unfortunately, if I could I'd have a dog. But I travel so much it's not fair to a dog to have to farm him out or her out. So it's not quite time. I, I've had dogs in my life in the past, and I, I actually am a dog person, I would have to say. So uh, I'm kind of a godmother to a, a number of other dogs.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have
0: any of my own. Um And I just have been reading your book, and it's so fascinating to understand more of the nature of dogs. Who are these beings? I I, I always have that question. They're so amazing in people's lives. So before we get into that really fascinating area, I want you to share a bit about your journey and how you found your way into this canine world.
1: Well, absolutely, Cheryl. So... For me, the story of dogs in my life starts when I was a kid, particularly a teenager and an adolescent, when we had a wonderful dog called Benji, who I still remember so fondly, who I felt when I was, when I was an adolescent, a teenager, you know, it's a difficult phase of life. You, don't, you feel that nobody really understands you. But I really felt that that dog understood me. At some deep emotional level, I felt this connection to Benji, which was really helpful to me. As I say, it's a difficult phase of life. And, and it was really a great source of comfort to me to have this dog who seemed, obviously not intellectually, but at an emotional level, he really seemed to understand me. And so, I tell the story in the, in the book, Dog is Love. You know, I, I grew up and I went to college and I was always interested in the minds of animals and I became an animal psychologist who studied the minds of animals in the way that animal psychologists usually do. You know, we tend to study animals that are small and easy to keep in cages in labs. I worked a lot with pigeons, a little bit with rats. They're the kind of bread-and-butter animals that animal psychologists often work with. But there came a point, there came a point about 15 years ago. I don't want to call it a midlife crisis because that's just a cliché, but there came a point where I knew I needed some new challenges in my professional life. And I realized I wasn't just interested in animal minds. I am abidingly interested in animal minds, but that wasn't enough. I was also very intrigued by how people and other species interact with each other, about human-animal relationships. And you don't have to think about this for long to realize There is no animal with which people have had a longer relationship or with which people now have a stronger, more intense, more intimate relationship than with our dogs. And so about 15 years ago, I turned the big ship of my research enterprise around and I started studying dogs. And uh, so in that way, I've been able to bring into my professional life a being that I have such a strong emotional connection with, I think very few people are privileged in that way that their their professional life is also emotionally extremely rich and satisfying because I study these beasts that I love
0: so much so let me just go back a bit so you you became an animal psychologist. What is the purpose of being an animal psychologist when you were studying all those other animals? The, you know the the pigeons and the rats and well, right, right, right. what is so, the purpose? What you know? What, what are you? What are you trying to achieve? I, I find that really a fascinating area.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Cheryl. So it's a great question. Animal psychologists. I mean, there every animal psychologist would answer for themselves, right? But I think broadly speaking, the aim of animal psychology is to understand the minds of animals how they differ from human minds and how they differ from each other. So, for example, to give you one one case that I was involved in. So it used to be believed, going back to ancient philosophers, even the ancient Greeks, that what makes the difference between humans and all other living creatures is that only humans can reason. And so I was involved back in those days in a series of studies on pigeons, showing that pigeons are capable of reasoning. And so that's, that's very interesting. To, it gives us a better perspective on what does, or in this case does not, make us human beings unique. We are not unique in our ability to reason. Some other species can reason as well. Another element that I worked on is I spent a decade living and working in Australia. Now, Australia has a completely unique set of animals. It's not just kangaroos. Kangaroos are, if you like, marsupial deer, they occupy about the role in life that deer occupy over here. It's not just kangaroos, there are marsupial rabbits, there are marsupial mice, marsupial rats. Every mammal that we see around us here in North America, in Australia there is a marsupial doing that job. But marsupials have been very, very little studied by animal psychologists. And so I was able to do some fascinating work, or to me at least fascinating work, looking into the minds of some marsupial species and understanding how they reason about the world and learn about the world. So there are, I mean, as I say, if you interviewed 20 animal psychologists, you would get different answers from each of them. But broadly speaking, we're trying to understand how animals think, what makes animal minds tick, and how they differ from us and how they differ from each other.
0: So what do you think the uh, result has been from all those years of research? And we'll get into the dog world. But because you've been involved with um, investigating and exploring and learning about and building relationships with all these other animals, what what would you say is the take-home message that you learned from your years of having these special relationships?
1: So, um, the take-home message, yeah, the I, th- I think for me what I take home from it is that every species has unique ways of behaving in the world, unique ways of thinking about the world around it, and um, we are unique, we humans are unique, we have things we can do that no other species can do, no other species could be having this kind of conversation with each other like we're having now, but that doesn't mean to say that other species don't have their own unique skills and abilities. Um, and certainly the way they perceive the world, the way they experience the world around them is radically, radically different. So, I mean, we naturally tend to think that we are superior to all other animals and we certainly do have skills and capacities that give us great power over the world, uh, power which we need to use responsibly. But other species can do amazing things, too. So I, I mentioned I lived and worked in Australia for a decade. I lived in Western Australia. Western Australia is larger than Texas, California, and Alaska put together. Western, the state of Western Australia is larger than the three largest U.S. states put together. But only about 2 million people live there. So there's an enormous amount of empty land. And every year, people get lost in, that, in the empty deserts of Western Australia. Tragically, many of them die because it's a very harsh environment. And yet, guys who keep pigeons, pigeon fanciers who race their pigeons, routinely drive pigeons out in a truck into the middle of the desert and release them, and the pigeons immediately fly home to the city, something that human beings cannot possibly do. So in this case, we're seeing pigeons have a way of understanding the world around them, actually several ways of understanding the world around them, that give them a capacity which we human beings can only emulate using a GPS system.
0: Right. Mm. It must have given you such a reverence for life.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think this uh, an awareness of the diversity of life on this planet is a very enriching thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, you just see the intelligence of all life, and intelligence in their own way, not necessarily as we define it, but every species has an intelligence. You have to have an intelligence to survive.
1: Absolutely, Cheryl, absolutely. So it's a, it's a case of different strokes for different folks. Different species are confronted by different challenges, and so they've evolved to deal with those
0: challenges by developing different forms of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, well gosh, that's a that's an interesting subject, but we'll move on to dogs because okay. there are so many dog lovers out there in the world and I'm sure so many of my listeners are avid dog lovers and uh, are are really, you know, keen to learn more about dogs and who these creatures are and our relationship to them so um so, so let's talk about um let's talk about dogs and how they relate to humans what what was it you wanted to study about them so the under underlying question that gets me is
1: what makes dogs so special nobody can deny that dogs are special dogs are so amazing the thing is Because so many of us live with dogs every day, their existence with us is that kind of everyday miracle that you can overlook because it's so routine, but it is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle that an animal that is descended from a wolf, from a a vicious wild predator, descended in only 15 to 20,000 years, which for anybody who looks at the history of life on this planet, is nothing at all, no time at all, has become such a loving companion. There's, there's an everyday miracle there, that when I come home, I know how my dog's feeling, and there's every sign that my dog knows how I'm feeling. And yet, who are we to each other? We're We're not related in any kind of close way at all. My dog wags her tail, right? You see a dog wagging its tail. You know what she's saying to you. How do you know? You don't have a tail. Your friends don't have tails. And even the parts of your body that you could lift up and wag around, like you could lift up your right arm and wag your right arm the way your dog wags her tail. But you don't. We don't do anything. like I sometimes do this when I'm giving talks to people. I pick up my right arm and I wave my right arm and I say, here, look, here I'm conveying to you how happy I am to be with you. And people are completely stupid because no human being conveys their happiness by waving their arm or their anxiety by tucking their arm between their legs. I mean, that would, be, that would be crazy beyond belief. And yet our dogs do it and we instantly get it. We instantly grasp what our dogs are communicating, communicating to us. And we should stop for a moment and just contemplate that miracle because that is a really remarkable fact and that it runs in both directions. We understand our dogs and our dogs who don't communicate emotion the same way we do. Nonetheless, they are very sensitive to what we are up to. And that's a miraculous thing. And that's what motivates me fundamentally is to understand that relationship and from deeper understanding comes the capacity to do more good in the world because there is so much good in the dog-human relationship, but there is always capacity to do better. We can do better by our dogs, and we can help them do better by us. Uh, and that's, that's ultimately what gets me out of bed in the morning nowadays.
0: So, so let's go there. So how can we do better with our dogs?
1: Right. So there are several things, and in the, the final chapter of Dog is Love is called Dogs Deserve Better, and I address this directly, and um, there are, I mean, without reading out the whole chapter, there are a few things I would like to draw your listeners' attention to. Uh, obviously, there are many forms of cruelty, and people know cruelty when they see it. I'm going to talk about things that are not, uh, not necessarily immediately obvious to everybody. So... One thing is, I am convinced, and I, you know, the book is one long argument outlining how I'm convinced that our dogs really love us and explaining how dogs have this, this, this really exaggerated capacity and desire to form strong social bonds. That's what dogs are. That's the essence of the dog, that they're looking for love and they're looking for connection. So we take this highly social animal, and what do we do with it? Many people, tragically, don't, I mean, it was interesting you said in your introduction that you haven't presently got a dog because you travel too much, and I I wanted to to come back to that and to praise you for that. Not every human life has a dog-shaped space in it, and if your life is the kind of life where you have to leave for work at 7 o'clock in the morning and you won't get home till 7 o'clock in the evening, you should stop and think seriously about whether it's wise to take a dog into that life. Because unless you can do something else, unless you have some kind of an arrangement you can nip home for lunch, or you have a neighbor who'll pop in on your dog, or a dog walker, or maybe a doggy daycare. Unless there's something else you can do, just leaving a dog alone for 12 hours a day is cruel. I think leaving our dogs home alone is the cruelest thing that we routinely do to our dogs, and that people fail to recognize just how unreasonable it is to take this highly social animal and shut it away in solitary confinement for hour after hour, day after day. That's not reasonable. Um, so that is that is one area where I wanna draw people's attention that we can do better by our dogs. Uh, there are ways of working around that if you cannot get home, or if it's really beyond your capacity, then you know, borrow your friend's dogs from time to time. Don't be somebody who has a dog of your own at home. Of course, dogs can find company in other species too. This is something I talk about in the book. Dogs are very willing to form relationships with members of other species. We see that directed towards us because of course we are the humans who are observing this. But dogs can form relationships so far as we know. If a dog is exposed to any kind of an animal early in life, it will throughout its life seek out individuals from that species to form emotional connections with. So obviously, most dogs have had enough time around other dogs when they were young that they will form friendships with dogs throughout life. So if you have more than one dog, they could keep each other company. Dogs that grew up around cats may be willing to form friendly relationships even with their historical enemies, cats. If the cat is willing to go along with it, Um, So that's another possibility. I have seen here in Arizona, I visited some ranchers, goat ranchers, and they keep dogs with their goats to protect the goats from coyotes, which can be a problem out here. And all you have to do is put the puppies with goats when they're small, and then the dogs grow up ready and willing to form emotional connections with goats. And that means they follow the goats around wherever they go on the ranch, and they will protect the goats if they perceive that the goats are under threat. So um, so there are many ways that dogs can form uh, so emotionally satisfying relationships. It doesn't have to be with us.
0: You know, this reminds me of a story who, from an Australian friend who grew up on a property with sheep. And she said that there was a time when her Dad would bring in these young lambs that lost their mothers so they had to hand feed them bottle feed them and then the dogs were you know there cuz they were kept close to the house and the the sheep dogs were around when they were feeding these young these young lambs And she said that when her dad would, you know, look for a sheep that he wanted to butcher for the family and, you know, he took out the carving knife and the dog knew exactly, you know, what that meant, that dog would never bring in any of those lambs. When you know when he bonded with them, they were never the ones he cut out of the flock. To bring in. So that just it just reminded me of that story of you know the well, bonding and yeah. He said, "No, you don't touch those guys. These are my friends."
1: Well, you know, I can I can uh, tell you a wonderful story from Australia. The most extreme case I was able to find of dogs bonding with another species is from an island just off the south coast of Australia on the eastern side um, where there are dogs who take care of penguins. So there's an island just off the coast of Australia where penguins live. And unfortunately, this island is a little too close to the mainland. And at certain times of year, at low tide, foxes can get across onto the island. And foxes repeatedly decimated the penguin population on this island. Until one day, a local farmer who was farming free-range chickens and had dogs who guarded his chickens, he had the brilliant idea of why don't we put a couple of these dogs out on this island, uh, having first let the dogs grow up around penguins so that they develop a bond, or at least we'll see whether dogs can develop a bond with penguins, put the dogs out on the island, and sure enough, Foxes are no longer a problem. They have a couple of kennels out on the island, and the dogs live out there and keep an eye on the penguins, who they've fallen in love with because they were raised <laughs> to penguins. And so you now, now you, have these, you have these dogs loving on penguins and keeping an eye open, and there hasn't been any trouble. They've been doing this for several years now, and there hasn't been any subsequent trouble from the foxes because the foxes are shooed away by the, by the dogs. I haven't seen this myself yet, I, I, because I lived in Australia for a while, I have friends there and my wife's from there and so on, so I do visit Australia, but the problem is that I only have time to go down there in our summer, which is when it's winter in the southern hemisphere of course. and the dogs don't live on the island in the winter. The winter storms are enough to keep the penguins safe in the winter, and it's not really kind to leave dogs out in kennels in the winter, so the, the dogs live on the mainland in the winter and only go out to protect the penguins during the summer, which I haven't yet been able to see for myself. One of these days, I'm going to get
0: there. <laughs> that would be great. I bet that's Phillip Island you're talking about, right? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I've it's actually fun. seen those fairy penguins down there, but I haven't seen the dogs. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so, so um, what about, okay, so if you leave a dog home alone, do they get depressed? Do they get sick? What What are the consequences well, of so leaving the,
1: the a dog home? That, well, right. So the term that people use is separation anxiety. That's the most common label that's used. Um, I couldn't say that the science of dog behavior is sufficiently advanced to be able to be entirely confident, whether we're talking about anxiety or depression but it's some kind of distress and we see it behaviorally in dogs will bark inappropriately um dogs will uh uh make a mess you know toilet problems in the house um so we see a variety of problem behaviors which clearly stem from basically from loneliness
0: right i you know my um my brother had a dog, and when they would leave him home when they went to work, and when they came back, I mean, every garbage pail had been gone through. The curtains had been chewed up. I mean, that dog was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> it was like no, destroying cool. the house.
1: Well, as I say, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much to ask of our dogs to spend such extended periods of time alone. In Sweden, there's actually a law that you must not leave your dog alone for more than four <laughs> hours at a stretch. And I'm not suggesting that we take on board Swedish law, but I think it's something everybody should stop and think about. If, if your life is structured so that it would be very difficult to, to not leave your dog alone for more than four hours at a stretch, then you probably shouldn't get a dog. Uh, as I say, though, there are, there are ways around that, right? Dog walkers, dog sitters, doggy daycares. Um, yep. It's not insurmountable, but it needs to be seriously thought about.
0: So do you think that dogs have an uh, an emotional life and and, and do other animals have an emotional life?
1: Well, Cheryl, so it's interesting. Emotions are much deeper in animal psyche than what we call cognition, thoughts and so on, right? So yes, I'm convinced that dogs have an emotional life. Cats have emotional lives. They're not experiencing necessarily... The more complex emotions, um, but basic emotions, basic states of happiness, sadness, of loneliness, pleasure in company, you don't have to think hard to experience those kinds of emotions. They're just they're just sometimes philosophers call them raw feels. They are very basic experiences. Now there are other kinds of emotion, like guilt, for example. Guilt is a much more intellectually demanding emotion because to feel guilt, you have to understand that you did wrong and you have to understand that your community is angry with you for having done something wrong. So you have to be able to think several steps before you can feel guilt. But just to feel bad or to feel good, there are no intellectual steps involved in that. So I'm I'm thoroughly convinced that our dogs certainly do experience the basic emotions, yes.
0: Do you think they experience guilt? I mean, I've seen dogs that they don't. I mean, they've eaten things they shouldn't have eaten, and they know they shouldn't have eaten them, and they have that look when you
1: catch them. So, Cheryl, there are wonderful, wonderful wonderful studies by Alexander Horowitz at Barnard College in New York City, wonderful, wonderful studies on the guilty look in dogs, because dogs certainly do look guilty, absolutely. I mean, you can find photos online and videos on YouTube, dogs with the well, you know, hang dog face, hang dog face. What looks (laughs) guiltier than a hang dog face, right? It's a cliche. Um, But what's absolutely fascinating in these very clever studies that Alexandra did, it doesn't actually make any difference whether the dog did wrong or not. So she did these beautiful studies, and other people have picked this up since then, where they have dogs and their owners, and she lied to half of the owners, Right? So she lied to half of the owners as to whether their dog had done good or done wrong. And what's interesting is that the hang dog face appeared, the guilty look appeared on the faces of the dogs, not the dogs who've necessarily done wrong, but on the faces of the dogs whose owners believe they had done wrong. And what's really going on with the guilty look on a dog's face is that the dog can perceive that their human is angry with them. And that look that the dog develops isn't a recognition of guilt. It's just the look that says, please don't punish me. I can tell you're angry with me, but please, please don't punish me. That is something that's much emotionally much more basic. It's much more basic to just look at somebody who you love and who is important in your life and powerful in your life and just recognize on their face that they're angry and not want them to be angry, be scared of their anger. That's much more basic. You don't need to understand what you were supposed to do, what you shouldn't have done, all that kind of stuff, which requires higher-level thinking. You don't need that, and if there's nothing to suggest that dogs have that. What dogs have is they're very, very sensitive to the emotional states of their owners. You really matter to your dog. And I'm, I've, I feel bad. I have a bad conscience about this because... We when we moved house some years ago now, our poor dog Zephos was confused and a little upset to be moved to a new location and she we don't leave her alone home for a long periods of time, but inevitably we can't always take her with. So she's always got to be able to spend a couple of hours on her own. But because she was upset about the move to a new location, she started chewing cushions and I know it's pointless punishing your dog, and I never mean to punish my dog. But I get home, and there's, there's mess from the cushions all over the place. And I, I didn't touch her, but I couldn't, I couldn't hold myself back from just remonstrating with her and telling her in a disappointed voice that I was upset by her. And she immediately, immediately goes into the whole thing with the hangdog face and the tail tucked <laughs> You know, she's she's imploring me, Daddy, Daddy. i It seems like she's saying, Daddy, Daddy. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And even though I knew the science says she doesn't understand this, anyway. So <laughs> I, I come home. I come home, and I and I actually I actually called Alexandra about this. I actually called her about this, and she talked me down. She talked me down, <laughs> and she said, Look, guys, if you really if you really need convincing, next time you come home, and there's no. Bitten cushion around the house. Just talk to Zephos the way you spoke to her when she had damaged the cushion. And so I did this. And I came home and I acted it out. And there was no damage in the house. But I said to Zephos, you know, I'm very disappointed in you that you were. (laughs) That sounds cruel. she (laughs) She does the whole guilty look. She does the whole thing that she did when I was remonstrating with her about having bitten into a cushion, what I'm remonstrating with her about nothing, there's no bit cushion. There's nothing there. I'm just repeating the speech. And so it's totally about her sensitivity to me, which is, of course, why I love her, because it's just so exquisite that she is so sensitive to my moods. It's just too, too cute for words. But so no, so they don't experience guilt. They don't experience shame. All those kinds of things are too intellectually complex for a dog right. to grasp. But they right. do they do feel happy and sad and they certainly do feel whether you are happy or sad with them. That's something they're exquisitely sensitive to.
0: Right. So let's talk about dogs' intelligence. I mean I've seen dogs do amazing things and uh you know, you talk a lot about uh, things that dogs have accomplished and tricks that they are able to do. So that's that's an intelligence, right? To be able to learn to do tricks. So when you call out a toy, they will go and get the toy that you mentioned, as opposed to another toy. How, uh, well, what do we understand about intelligence of dogs? Well, sure, Cheryl. So it's 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 a
1: it's a kind of intelligence, but. And I'm, you know, I don't want to get hate mail from people who have smart dogs. I know there are people who have smart dogs out there. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I need to say, though, is that the kind of intelligence that's required to be trained to do the amazing things that some dogs can do, and I, I've met Chaser, who unfortunately passed on a few months ago, the dog who learned the names of 1,200 different objects, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. But the basic skill that's involved in that, uh, that ability is a very, very basic skill. It's a form of associating sounds with objects that actually goes back to Pavlov. You know, this is basically what Pavlov mm. showed us over a century ago now. And it's not, although Pavlov used dogs, every animal that's ever been tested for this ability to associate things together has been shown capable of doing this. And although what Chaser could do, knowing the names of 1,200 objects, you know, I, I visited, I like to say I knew Chaser before she was famous because I actually was put onto her by a friend who was a colleague of the retired professor who trained Chaser, John Pilly, who's now also passed on. Uh, I, I went out to their home and they, John Pilly had 1,200 toys in boxes on his back deck. And he and Chaser went out on the front deck so they couldn't see which toys I chose. And I chose a a dozen toys, and I hid them behind the sofa. And then I called John and Chaser back into their living room. They sat down, or at least John sat down on the sofa so that he couldn't see what was behind the sofa. And I gave him a list where I'd written down the names of the toys that I'd selected. And he read out these names one by one and said, okay, go, Chaser, go get the whatever it was, they all had kind of funny names. And uh, Chaser ran around behind the sofa and she looked at these toys pretty much like a human being would who was looking for a particular object among a pile of other objects. And she'd pick one out and she'd run back around to the front of the sofa and she'd offer it up to John. And he, would have to, he himself couldn't remember the names he'd given all these toys. And so he'd have to take the toy from Chaser and he'd written the names primarily on the wash tags with an indelible marker. And um he would read the name, yeah, sure, everyone she got right. We did it again <laughs> and again and again. And so I saw her collect correctly by name probably forty or fifty of these toys. I mean she could have gone on forever. But here's <laughs> here, yeah, I mean it was amazing, amazing experience. But here's the thing, Cheryl, it's a pretty basic ability. The ability of a dog to know the names of twelve hundred objects is not in principle different from the ability of a dog to learn the name of two or three objects. And they learn the name by associating the sound with the object and a reward for bringing the object back. And what makes Chaser exceptional, and what made what John and Chaser were able to achieve together exceptional, is that Chaser was just so unbelievably motivated. So to get to 1200 object names, John and Chaser worked together Three hours a day, every day of the week, for three whole years. And the truth is, most people and most dogs just wouldn't have the patience to take it that far. So this amazing ability, and it is amazing, is built from very very simple building blocks. And the same is true of our sniffer dogs. You know, I, the dogs that that impress me very greatly are the dogs that sniff out explosives, landmines, and so on. I mean. People like to say, from an emotion, meaning it in a completely emotional way. They say, "My dog saved my life." You know, they, people say that, and I, I understand what they mean, but they mean it in a metaphorical way. These are dogs—dogs dogs that work at airports and checking the football stadium before a game. These real explosive sniffer dogs—they are quite literally saving people's lives. There's no nothing metaphorical about it. They're actually preventing people from being blown up. It's an amazing thing, and they do it, and we couldn't do it. I mean, we can learn the names of 1,200 objects. I'm sure you know the names of more than 1,200 objects. I I do, right? We all, know, we all have a vocabulary that's more than 1,200 words. But we can, we couldn't. We just don't have the capacity to learn how to sniff out explosives. That's just beyond our sensory capacity. Our noses are just not sensitive enough. So that's really, really amazing. But again, it's built on very, very, basic forms of learning exactly again the form of learning that Pavlov identified over a century ago that you learn to associate Something in the world in the case of a sniffer dog. It's a particular smell With some kind of a consequence, which is usually uh, you know a food treat or some other kind of reward for the dog so the underlying kinds of learning the underlying intellectual capacities that we see in dogs who've been trained to do very smart things, are really pretty basic kinds of intellectual capacity. What's amazing about dogs, what gets them to the point where they end up being able to do quite amazing things, like sniffer dogs, like guide dogs for the blind and so on, is that they really want to work with people, that they are, the the term people often use of dogs is they are biddable. You can ask them to do something and they want to do it. They want to work with you. So for me, the take-home message of visiting John Pilly and Chaser, the take-home message is the amazing strength of the bond between them. The, the, what they achieved is a reflection of their relationship. And that's what dogs have in space. They have this willingness, this desire to enter into a strong relationship with a human being.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful story. So I gather if we all were willing to put three hours a day in for three years with the right reward, we might find that all of our dogs could be exceptional in that regard.
1: We might, Cheryl. The, the crucial, one thing is the patience. Another thing is the time. And the third thing is when you said the right kind of reward. Chaser, I mean her very name. Why did they call her Chaser? She was a border collie, and she was absolutely crazy about chasing things. So the only, re- the only tangible reward that she received, apart from John Pilly's praise, which was worth something to her, I'm sure, was that he would throw the object, and she could bring it back. And then he'd throw it again, and she would bring it back. And she found that tremendously rewarding. My own dog, Zephos, she would not find the opportunity to chase an object particularly rewarding. And so that mean that if I wanted to train her to do something magical, I would almost certainly have to use food treats. And you just can't keep putting food treats into your dog for <laughs> 3 hours a day. You have a very a very pudgy dog pretty quickly if
0: you it would have to, do to be that. a crumb at a time. <laughs> yeah,
1: right, right exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So so that, that kind of leads me to the question all these different breeds of dogs have different qualities and traits, you know, like Shepherd dogs and cat, Australian cattle dogs, and I mean they're, they, I mean they will round up anything, right? And, um, right? and 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 if we get these breeds, I don't know what other what other breeds also are designed for for working. I mean there are a lot of working dogs or water hunting dogs, obviously. If they're not if they're not doing what they were bred to do, do they? Get unhappy? Are they? Do they get a little? You know, I don't know what the term is—a little dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, I don't know, Cheryl. That's a good question. I must confess, I don't think all that much about about uh, working breeds of dog. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I really don't know the answer. If they suffer, uh, if they don't have an opportunity to do the characteristic behavior of their breed. What I tend to think about more is just how um, how much all dogs have in common, rather than what sorts dogs out into right. okay. a different. It.
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. So, um, a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you: What about um, what about dogs that have been traumatized? So, dogs that you find in rescue places, you know, and in, and. In, in, uh, uh, you know whatever whatever rescue facilities there are in, in one's you know neighborhood, you know when you're looking for a dog. So these dogs that had a past history, some of them have been abused one way or the other. What is it that we need to know that if we adopt one of these dogs that have behaviors that showed they've been abused? How do we create a healing? you know, healing for them and, and in the relationship?
1: Well, so I don't, I don't want to be pollyanna about this. I mean, there certainly are dogs that have suffered so badly, especially early in life. that There are going to be uh, serious behavioral problems. And I, I'm not a dog trainer, um, so I'm not going to try and give advice in domains I'm not expert in. But there are expert dog trainers out there, and, and in difficult cases you may need to call on the help of an expert and there are um, there are good people out there. But one thing I will say is, Cheryl, that dogs are strikingly resilient. They can bounce back from quite difficult circumstances. Uh, all you need to provide is a loving home and dogs uh, respond to that a lot of the time. So a lot of dogs can find their way back from circumstances that would surely cause PTSD in in a human being, but dogs do seem to have more resilience and uh, greater capacity to bounce back. And for dogs that really have had uh, such difficult early lives that they're not able to make it on their own, then you do need to call on somebody who's perhaps a certified professional dog trainer or one of the other reputable uh, certifications. Unfortunately, nationally and even at the state level, there's no, um, there are no qualifications required to call yourself a dog trainer or an animal behaviorist. Unfortunately, those are completely unregulated. It's a completely unregulated profession at the legal level, but there are some good uh, certification bodies. And uh, so if you're going to call on somebody, make sure that they have a recognized certification. Do a bit of due diligence. And people have been able to uh, bring back dogs who've been in the most horrific situations. So you might remember the um the dogs of the of the footballer um I'm forgetting his first name, Vic. What was his first name? Uh, was it Michael Vic? Um these dogs d you're kept- asking
0: me, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. But there there certainly have been recent cases of dogs who had had been kept as fighting dogs, which is such a horrible thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Um and Typically, dogs taken from fighting rings have just been euthanized because it's been believed that they're irredeemable. But actually, the ASPCA took these dogs and did some very, very intensive rehabilitation with them, and there was just a recent news item that the dogs are doing tremendously well. So uh, dogs, are, dogs are strikingly resilient, and they can bounce back. But if it's in difficult cases, they may need, they may need professional help.
0: Yeah. So, um so that's great and and the other thing I wanted to ask is about training a dog. So, if you uh are, you know, you have a new dog or a puppy and you you want to train I know you've written a little bit about this in your book. What 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 did you learn about the best way to train a dog to listen, to be obedient, to do what you want it to do when you want it to do it. How, how how do you go about doing that? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that uh,
1: training beyond a certain basic minimum is not essential to have a wonderful relationship with your dog. I mean, my dog, I can't, you know, what do they say? Um, the cobbler's children have the worst shoes. I can't <laughs> be bothered training my dog. I, I think she's basically perfect. I don't see why I would do anything. She's very, very good at just being near me and making me feel fine and watching TV with me and going for walks with me. You know, I don't need more than that. She can eat her dinner. What else does she need to do? <laughs> um, now my wife finds it amusing to train our dog and so they go out and they do together and they seem to enjoy it and that's all good and good and dandy. Um, so you don't need to feel, you know, let's not get competitive about this. I mean, you don't, you don't need your dog to do much, right? I mean, your dog is just Just a companion, that's what your dog wants to be and all your dog needs to be is a companion. Um, But sure, so, but there can be reasons to train a dog. Your dog may have bad manners, you may need to train your dog to have better manners. And what's a total, total tragedy is that there are still people out there, some very popular people with very wide reach who put out the idea that you need to beat your dog into submission, that you need to convince your dog that you're the alpha animal in the home. And people who take that point of view have tended to emphasize coercion and shock collars and choke collars and just pulling and pushing your dog around and being mean to your dog, and that's so completely and utterly, not just unnecessary, not just pointless, counterproductive. It's true that our dogs do look to us for leadership. That's true. Our dogs are social beings and they understand social hierarchies and they understand that we're in charge. They understand that because we are the ones who can open the kibble bag. We are the (laughs) ones who can let them go out and tell them when to come back in. It's obvious that we are in charge in the home. Our dogs understand that and they understand that with a very, very high degree of sensitivity. But what they are looking for from us is gentle leadership. They're not looking to be dominated in the way that, you know, I don't know, the way that crazy people bandy that term around. They're just looking for gentle, gentle leadership. The the confusion arises because in the science of behavior, the term dominance gets used to identify how one individual in a group is the leader of that group. Now, I don't know who decided back when this science was being developed in the early 20th century, I don't know who decided that the word they would use was dominance, but really what is meant by that term in the science Better understood as leadership, gentle leadership would be a much better way of expressing that and if you're dealing with a with an animal trainer who starts talking to you about dominance about bringing pain into your dog's life, then mm-hmm. walk away quickly because that's not the right way to go about it
0: well that's such great advice I think we need to remember that that love love and you know gentle leadership as you were saying is really the most powerful way to relate to your job.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Mm. Well, in the time we have left, Clive, what is it that you want to share with us that we haven't covered already?
1: So, I think I think I would spend a moment addressing any cynics or skeptics out there, and I i have been, I'm guilty, I have been a skeptic myself. Actually, I think as a scientist, one should always be a bit skeptical. I mean, there are people who say my dog doesn't really love me, she just uh, wants me to feed her, and so she makes eyes at me, but you know, she doesn't really love me. And I talk about in, in the book Dog is Love, I talk about how I was a skeptic too once, but well, I looked at the behaviors of our dogs and not just the behavior, you know, the behaviors of how they go crazy when they go, when we come home, uh, all those kinds of things that are simple, easily observed by anybody, but also deep inside the bodies of our dogs, we can see how their whole bodies are programmed for love. And we see that in their hormones. There are some wonderful studies on the, what people call the love hormone, oxytocin, uh, showing how when people are together with their dogs, people who love their dogs and whose dogs love them how you get spikes in this hormone oxytocin on both sides when they look at each other lovingly we see this in their heart literally in their hearts you can measure heartbeats and you can see how when a person and a dog who love each other sit down together next to each other how their heartbeats first they go down the heart rate goes down as Two partners calm each other, but they actually begin to, their hearts beat in unison. Isn't that amazingly beautiful? Mm. That the hearts actually beat together as they settle down together. We see it in their brains, where there are studies out of Emory University in Atlanta, where Gregory Burns has trained dogs to lie still in brain scanners so that you can see the activity in a dog's brain when it's reminded of the presence of its owner and you see how the reward centers in the brain light up. In most dogs, they light up even more to be reminded of the presence of their owner than when you remind them of the possibility that they might get a small piece of hot dog. Most dogs actually find the presence of their owner more rewarding than a piece of hot dog. And we see it all the way down to the deepest possible levels of biology in the genetic code that is the ultimate building block of all living things. We see how there are mutations in the genetic code of dogs that make them more loving beings than their wild ancestors' wolves. So the love that dogs feel for us and potentially for other beings like goats and penguins is deep, deep in their biological nature. So that, that's, that's my take home message. Your dog really loves you and it's, and it's deep in their nature.
0: That's so beautiful. You know, makes me want to get a dog. <laughs> i don't have to change too many things right now in my life, but you know, the time will come. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, because they are wonderful companions, and I, I just you know remember the dog, the family dog that was that was a pug who was a character. You know, my parents just doted on this dog, and I I can see where they just can increase oxytocin. How how healing is that? I, I guess that's part of the role of a therapy dog as well as guiding a person around it's just having this companion this loving presence with you
1: yeah absolutely absolutely
0: so uh, one last question you are um founding director of the canine science collaboratory which is a new word <laughs> i haven't heard <laughs> before so what are you working on now
1: so um, we do a lot of our work with shelter dogs because I think that's kind of the pointy end of the human-dog relationship, how we can help those dogs who are in difficulties. And right now we have a big project going on sponsored by Mattis Fund, which is a major charity interested in the welfare of animals, uh, looking at the benefits to shelter dogs of being taken out on fostering opportunities. And so we're going all around the country showing shelters how to set up fostering programs and looking at and following what that does for the dog's welfare when they get to leave what you could in some sense call their prison for a few days or a few weeks and spend some time temporarily with a family and uh, it's a it's a great benefit to the dogs to be able to do that so that's one of the big projects we have going on at the moment
0: Wow, that sounds so interesting so there so you can just have a dog for a short period of time, you don't have to make a long-term commitment, but you can still have a dog be with you. Is that? Um, do you think that's stressful for the dog when they separate after being with the family well, so, for a little while?
1: So this is precisely why we, uh, why we got involved in this, because there were some shelters doing this, and they had exactly this problem. It's known, actually, in our own species, there are places where prisoners are allowed out on weekend release And studies have been done on this to find that the prisoners allowed out on weekend release, they are that much more depressed on Monday for having been free through the weekend than prisoners who were not set free for the weekend. And so there was concern that that might be true for dogs as well and that it might therefore not be such a great idea. But actually it's not true of dogs. Dogs do not suffer any rebound anxiety depression once they get back into the shelter because they were out uh, for a few days, or a weekend, or a week, or whatever. So no, there are no negatives for the dogs. The dogs are definitely happier while they're out. They're also um, more likely to get adopted if they're out and about in the community. Uh, You might put a um, a collar on the dog, or a coat on the dog that says, hey, I'm available for adoption, and then the, the foster family take the dog out to cafes and things, and people notice the dog, so it improves the dog's chance of getting adopted gives the dog a better time while it's out and if the dog has to go back to the shelter the dog suffers no residual ill effects because it's depressed to be back in prison or anything like that. So it's it's a win win all the way around. It's a great idea.
0: Oh, that's a, that's great. That's it's a great concept and um I trust it'll just grow around the country because it sounds like it's a um, really kind way to work with these sheltered animals and give them the best chance of getting adopted being seen
1: exactly exactly we're we're in the middle of a three year project reaching out to 100 shelters all around the country my team just got back from Detroit Um, I'm afraid I don't remember where they're going next but they're going all over the place it's uh, it's a big thing
0: and they've had success
1: oh absolutely yeah I know it's tremendous we did a small project first to prove that it was a good idea and uh, and now we're going nationwide and uh, yeah it's going really really well
0: Oh, that's great. A great note to end on, Clive. So I want to um, encourage people to pick up Clive's book, Dog is Love, How and Why Your Dog Loves You. So whether you're a dog lover or want to be a dog lover, you will be a dog lover after you read this book, and you want to rush out and get your dog (laughs) and find your companion, (laughs) um, please pick up a copy, Dog is Love. And if you want to learn more about Clive Wynn and what he's doing, his website is Clive Wynn, and it's W-Y-N-N-E for Wynn, W-Y-N-N-E.com, com. You can learn more about Clive's work. It's an absolute pleasure to have been talking to you today, Clive, and, uh, and, and learn about the wonderful work you're doing and building this uh, and honoring this relationship that humans have with dogs. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing.
1: Thank you, Cheryl. I had a really great time, and thank you so much for reaching out.
0: It's my pleasure. And as always, to everyone listening, thank you. I hope you will be uh, joining me every week on The Love Code and also Thursdays at 3 p.m. It's What Women Must Know. But if you just like me uh, at What Women Must Know or uh, opt in at Dr. Cheryl Summon, you'll get all of these wonderful conversations, inspiring, uplifting conversations into your inbox or show up on your feed. So we'll hope to see you there. And until next time, I always want to remind you, may your week be filled with love, peace, and harmony. Bye for now.